I don't know about you guys, but if you ever find yourself, you're starting to make an illustration or you're talking and you get into it and you realize this isn't going in the direction I wanted it to go in. Now I'm afraid that all those kids are going to sit there and go, oh my gosh, if I move, Reverend McCutcheon is going to come out of the pulpit and get me. So um, you can, parents, if that helps you, fine, but you can probably explain that's not what I was trying to say to them. Um, But, you know, talking about these things is tough to bring these profound truths down to a child's level. But that idea of not committing murder really is saying this, not only don't take a life unlawfully, but do everything you can to celebrate life in other people and to protect life and encourage it and to strengthen it. And that's what we want to do as a body of Christ. So before we come and we, um, we read God's word together, let's in humility and with reverence ask him to bless that time. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly to your word for it is truth. We sit under it. We have to wrestle with its reality. And we pray that it would take root in our lives and would bear fruit in our lives and that we would learn from you today. Teach us by your spirit. This isn't just a pep talk or a motivational speech, but it is truly your word explained to us through the power of your spirit. May we learn from it in Christ's name. Amen. And so as we began last week, we're talking about this incredible, very short book called Haggai. Now, Haggai was one of the minor prophets. Hopefully, you took opportunity this week to read through Haggai. It's really short, guys, and you can get through it. If you haven't read through it, uh, don't do it right now, uh, but uh, this afternoon, read through it and consider it. For what has happened is we talked about a little bit of history last week, and I was very encouraged to find that many of you enjoy history. So we're going to do it again this week. I'm kidding. So the rest of you are going, I didn't get half of what you said last week, Bill. But what I'll bring it all together is this. The people of God have been taken away into captivity, and they were unable to come back to Jerusalem. And they wanted to come back to Jerusalem. Some of them, a remnant, a portion of them, wanted to come back and reestablish the worship of God, Jehovah Yahweh, there in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple which had been devastated by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, And they petitioned the king, and the king uh, gave them permission now to come back and to rebuild the temple. And so they headed back with Ezra and with Haggai, and they were going to begin building the temple again. Now, at this time, they hadn't rebuilt the walls. The walls that Nehemiah came to build hadn't been built yet. And so they're rebuilding this temple in a burnt-out city of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies who don't like them, who don't want them to reestablish uh, this worship of God, because they've heard the stories. They've, they've been there and seen that their ancestors uh, had been dominated by these Israelites, these Jews, under King David and under Solomon and under the judges. And so they, they kind of liked the fact that Israel was in ruin. They had come in, and they'd taken over over parts of the land, and so they threatened the people. The people had reestablished, they'd begun, they, they built an altar, they had a celebration, but then they were threatened. And so for 14 years, they stopped the work that they had been called to do. And now God wants to get the people back to work. He wants to turn them back to their ultimate purpose in life. He wants to remind them of why they had come back. And to say to them, hey, you started off really well. Now there's some opposition that you've faced, but I want to turn you back and encourage you. So he used this man, Haggai, who was a prophet. And God used in that day and age prophets to speak through them. And you'll notice the prophets would begin their statements like this, thus says the Lord. 
Or in this one, it says, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to the people saying. And so he would begin these in this way. And so God's coming at this time, and he's in the second year of Darius the king. And you can go back, and the beauty of the Bible is it matches up beautifully with history. So if you want to go study about Darius, you can. And you can learn about what was going on at that time in the ancient Near East. And they had come back, and it says now, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to the people. Now, guess what? This wasn't just for them back in 520 B.C. This was for us in 2012 A.D., that we can learn something. You're not on a building project to build a temple. You're not on a building project to reestablish walls or to to reestablish a theocracy there within a country. But you do have a purpose in your life. You do have an ultimate calling on your life. Every single one of you sitting here today has an ultimate calling on your life and a purpose for your life. Now, you may not realize that or know what it is. Or you may have started out strong with it and been distracted or opposed over the course of time and gotten away from it. But God is saying to you today, thus says the Lord. Here is why you were created. Here is why you were made. Here is the purpose of your marriage. Here is the purpose of your child rearing. Here is the purpose of your schooling. Here is the purpose of everything that you have. And I'm going to tell it to you today. That's what God is wanting to say to us. You have a purpose. And that purpose is simply this. We're going to unpack it later. But it's this. To have the temple in the middle of your life. Now that seems obscure. But what he's saying is have me, the Lord, God Almighty, in the center of your life. And that everything in your life, everything in your world then grows out of that. That God isn't on the outside influencing your life, but he is absolutely taking up residence on the inside. And it says in the New Testament that we are now the temple of God, where the spirit of God dwells, that it's taken up residence here. And so wherever we go, we are now presenting God powerfully to the world around us. In our homes first and through our homes into our culture, wherever we work, wherever we play, wherever we live, that's what we're doing. Does that make sense? And so Haggai has something for us today. It says that he's a minor prophet, but there's nothing minor about his story and what he's saying today, for it is truly the word of the Lord. So let us with reverence hear God's word today from Haggai chapter 1. We read this last week, but we're going to read it again today. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it that I, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord God. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the high priest, and the spirit of all of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is God's word. May add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. And so we come here to this passage, and we need to look at a few things. The first thing we need to consider is simply this. What's the problem? What is the problem that's really being uh, addressed here? And the problem that's being addressed here wasn't an ancient problem, but it is a very modern problem, that we have forgotten our purpose in life. We've forgotten why we were created. We've forgotten why we've been established in this world. We forget very easily why, if we've come to be a Christian, why we were redeemed. And we then lose our purpose. Again, one of the best-selling books of all time, a great book by Rick Warren, was what? The Purpose Driven Life. And the simple premise of the book was this. Each of you has a purpose. Each of you has a purpose. It is foundational level stuff. And I am in great debt to Rick Warren for his ministry and and the work that he has done. But for that book to be the best-selling book ever in Christian circles is a sad indictment on the church. Because it basically says church, especially church in America, you have no idea what you're about. Christian, especially Western Christians, you have no clue what your purpose in the world is We've forgotten it. We wonder why the church is anemic in our country. We wonder why we don't have uh, any time in the press other than negative time in the press. We wonder why these things are. We wonder why we've, we've lost it. It's because we've lost our purpose. We don't remember what it is. And so that's what the first issue is here. The people here had forgotten their purpose. What was their singular purpose in returning from Babylon? It was simply this, rebuild the temple. If you gathered them all together and Ezra had them all together and he had a big congregational meeting and he stood up in front of them and he said, okay, folks, we're going to recite the mission of the church. What is our mission? Why are we returning from Babylon? Why are we returning from Syria? Why are we coming back to go back to Jerusalem? And the people would have easily said, we're going back, why? To build the temple. And they did. And they went back and they started great. They went in and they were enthusiastic. They went in and they gathered materials and it says that they established an altar and they began to worship and they celebrated one of the great feasts of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of the Booths, which was a time of remembering uh, God's blessing in the wilderness. And so they would have celebrated that and God's blessing through the manna and the quail and how he saw them through the 40 years in the desert and established them uh, in their country there in the promised land. What a great celebration, doesn't it seem appropriate? They've been in captivity. They come back. They reestablish the altar for the worship of God. And the first celebration they have is God's bringing them back from the wilderness to their home. And they started great. And things were going well. And they began to lay the foundation uh, of the temple. They began to, to do the work. Ah, but then something happened. You see, that's a lot of what happens with us. 
We start out really strong, but then we begin to fade. We, we start out enthusiastic in our Christian life, but then we sort of grow cold to the things of God. We fade a little bit. We forget the simple first catechism question. I'll ask it to you again. I asked you last week. What is the chief end of man? What is the man's ultimate purpose in the world? Do you know it? very simple. Your purpose, all of mankind's purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him. John Piper would say, by enjoying him forever. That we, we glorify him. We live our lives in such a way for people to see our Father in heaven. We live our lives. We conduct our business. We conduct our studies. We conduct the manner in which we, we celebrate life and we play golf and play on the beach and go to, to dances and play football games and do all of that. We do everything that we do so that we bring honor and glory to our Father in heaven and we enjoy this life most. Piper, in a, in a wonderful book, said, if you were in a desert and you found uh, a stream coming out, uh, uh, a spring out of the ground, how would you best glorify that spring? How would you best celebrate that spring? You would come to it and drink deeply from it, for you were accomplishing its purpose. You were coming and being satisfied in it, and it's the same way with God. God says, I am your ultimate satisfaction. If you want to glorify me, then you should be most satisfied in me alone. Quit running after counterfeits. Quit running after half-gods out there, less wild lovers. Quit running after all these other things and come running back to me and let me satisfy you and enjoy you. C.S. Lewis said, it's not that our desires are too much, but it's that we're too easily satisfied. We're satisfied with drink and sex and play in this world when God is offering to us something eternally, infinitely better than that. I describe it this way, for the church today, too often we're satisfied with carnival food instead of the rich food of the table that God presents to us. We'd rather have hot dogs and corn dogs and fried butter and some cotton candy and those kind of things that ultimately bring no deep satisfaction versus the table that he presents And says, come and eat the choicest of meats and drink the best of the wines and have the best of the fruit of the field. Come to my table and it would trump every other table. You see, that was what was happening with the people in Haggai's day and what's happening with us today. Us even sitting here. That we've forgotten our purpose. We start out strong and then we begin to grow cold. And I've heard it in so many of my conversations with you. Bill, I just don't feel that passion like I used to for living for Christ. What's God really want me to do in this world? What's God's will for me? We spend a lot of time trying to figure out God's will for us. And his will is incredibly simple. Honor me and glorify me in everything you do. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You see, and that's what was going on with these folks. They'd come out of the gates really fast, and they were doing some things, but then all of a sudden they stopped doing some things, and they began to grow cold to the things of God. And part of the reason they began to grow cold to the things of God was they faced some opposition. You see, they began building the temple. Now, interestingly, it's important to know they began building the temple without walls around the city. Why is that important to note? There was no protection. They were fully exposed to the world around them. 
all the opposition of all the tribes who didn't like them. And we said there was even some people who were formerly uh, Israelites, and they had intermarried, and so they had sort of gotten mixed up in all the other cultures and bringing in a little bit of paganism and a little bit of Judaism, and they were mixing it all together. And they said, hey, we want to help with the temple. And the people said, no, you don't get to help with the temple. This is just for, this is for us. And they didn't like that. And they began to oppose them. And they had armies Did the Jews have armies at this time? No. They had nothing. They were living in this city and even living outside of the city with no walls. They were fully exposed and they were opposed. And that opposition grew so much that they even, the opposition, sent back to the king and said, you need to stop this. And an edict came from the king that said, stop the work. And so they went, well, look. These people don't like us. They're opposing us. The king says that we shouldn't do this. Therefore, this must be right. We're stopping. And they stopped. For 14 years, they stopped. And they never got back to the work. You ever felt opposition in your life to your walk with Christ? That you get fired up, you come to the Lord, and you're excited and you go, I'm going to live for the glory of Christ in my life. I want to walk with him. I want to do this with him. And you come strong out of the gates, and then what's the very first thing that you, you find in the world? There's a lot of people who don't like the fact that you're fired up about Jesus. They get real uncomfortable when you start to talk about Jesus. Now, it's okay to talk about God, or I heard somebody accept a CMA award from the big man upstairs. You know, boy, that's bringing it down, isn't it? Thank you, big man. Well, it, but when you say, I want to, I'm so thankful to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, who saved me from going to hell. And he brought me out by his sacrificial death and life and gave me that. And there's no other way to get to heaven through him. That's who I'm living my life for. All of a sudden, people don't like that too much, do they? You can't talk about it in your schools. You can't talk about it in your workplaces. You can't do those things. And so there's opposition Our government may oppose us. Governments around the world may oppose Christians. And so it happens so often as we just go, oh, oh well. And we pull back and we grow cold to those things. Sometimes the opposition is within. I didn't read it. We're going to read a little bit more next week. But if you go to Ezra, they were beginning to build the foundation of the temple. And guess what they heard? There were some of the young people who were coming back from Babylon who'd never seen Jerusalem before, never seen what the original temple looked like. Remember, they didn't have Google images. They didn't have all of that stuff. They couldn't just go back and say, hey, what does Solomon's temple look like? They hadn't really seen it, but they'd heard stories of its glory and stories of its magnificence. And they're building all of this. And if you read the list of people who were coming back, it were they were not builders they were not architects they were just simple common folks with a passion to do the things of God and they were building it and so all these young people were getting excited we got another brick on top of a brick hey we got that huge stone on top of the other stone isn't this awesome we got the foundation going folks we should celebrate let's have a family night supper to celebrate all the good things that are going on and this is awesome and guess what there was a bunch of older folks who were standing around over there and I'm not picking on you for being older but for these folks they had been older folks and because they had seen Jerusalem before when in their childhood and they'd seen the temple in all of its glory and you know what they did Way to go, young people. Way to go. Way to do that. No. They went, oh, it's just not like it used to be. Mm, This younger generation, they're going to ruin it. They're going to ruin it. And it says that there was deep wailing and and crying going on because it didn't look. So guess what happens when you're all fired up about doing something and there's folks in your own family 
and maybe even in your own church, who are going, glad you're all fired up for Jesus, but temper it just a little bit there, buddy. Religion is a private thing. Your relationship with Christ is an internal thing. You shouldn't be talking about it too much out there. Just go, calm down there, Skippy. Just go to... That's what was happening. And guess what happens when you're so enthusiastic about something and the person sitting next to you takes a big wet blanket and throws it on it? What do you do? Oh, maybe my enthusiasm's a little bit out of line. Maybe I should buy in to the fact that building this temple really isn't all that important. Having God at the center of my life, it's just not all that important. It's really difficult for me to, to be the, you know, the, big man on campus and to have all the dates and to to do all the things and to progress in my company and and to make the money that I thought I was going to make and to do the things that I thought I should do. It's hard for me to do that with Jesus really being in the center, so I better temper that down. Because that's what the people here did. They faced opposition and they grew cold. But it's interesting, they didn't stop being busy. Because God gets on them. He says, you have lost your ultimate purpose. You have stopped and you've grown cold to the things that pertain to me, but it hasn't made you just sit around idly by. You've been busy, but while my house lays in ruins, you have built your paneled houses. A word that is only used of Solomon's temple and words that are only a word only used of the most lavish of the lavish. He basically says this, So, folks, as I consider what's going on in your life, you have dismissed me and diminished me and said you're not going to live for me and all the passion that you should have had for me, you've now turned for passion for your own things. And you live in these gorgeous homes. You live and have built these lives that you have. You are so concerned about your portfolios. You're so concerned about what is in your driveway. You're so concerned about your image. You're so concerned and you're spending all of your energy and all of your time on those things in my house over here lies in ruins. Isn't that how it works in our lives? It's not that we all of a sudden lose passion. It's that we lose passion for Christ. And we turn that passion towards something else. Well, Jesus would want me to provide for my family. Therefore, I have to work 60, 80 hours a week. Therefore, I have to cut corners. Therefore, I have to do this because God would want me to do that in my home. Well, God would want me to be happy, right? And to best glorify him, I need to be happy. So I'm going to pursue happiness with an incredible amount of passion. Hmm. And God's going, that's not what your ultimate purpose was. You've grown cold to it. So you see, that is the problem. We grow cold to the things of God. We come out of the gate strong. How many of you have gone to a summer camp or to a men's retreat or a women's retreat and you got back, you just experienced, I called them those like Jesus bumps. You were there and it's just, oh, you just felt Jesus all over you and it was just awesome and it was this mountain high and you're great and you're going to come back and you're going to take the world on for Christ. Anybody felt that way? What happened? Amazing how not everybody around you is quite as excited. Can I tell you everything that just happened on that short-term mission trip that I was on where I saw God working so powerfully in the midst? Well, what did you eat? What? No, let me tell you how God was so awesome and powerful working in this country and what I saw him doing in the prisons. Let me tell you, were you afraid? What kind of clothes did the people wear? 
I'm trying to tell you about all this awesome stuff that God did for me and the work that he's doing in me. Well, okay. Settle down there, Skippy. Just slow down a little bit. Don't get too far out ahead of the track of the crowd here. You don't want to be exposed out there. Stay with the pack here. And it says that we grow cold to these things. Here is the great thing about our God. Some of you are relating very well to what I'm talking about. You've grown cold in your hearts and in your lives. You still love Jesus. You still love God. But you just, he's just not the center. He's sort of one of many things that you're passionate about. And not the passion, which then impassions other things. So what do we do? Let me tell you about this great and awesome God that we serve and this great and awesome God that some of you are here investigating today. He won't leave you there. He is so loving and he is so passionate for you that he will come and invade your life and make your life in such a way that you will go, something is not quite right. He will come and he will confront your coldness He will confront your lostness. He will come and do that. You see, as a loving father, if you love your children, you will begin to hate the sin more that you see in them. And you will love them so much, parents, that you will engage their hearts to say, hey, little one, or if they're grown older, big one, let me tell you, this is going to lead to death. This is going to ultimately hurt you. That's our God, who that's why, guess what, he sent Haggai. Because for 14 years, the people had milled around. And he'd been trying to get their attention, interestingly enough. Did you notice that through this scripture? He said, I sent drought into the land. You brought back much, and I blew it away. You brought back a ton of money. You made all the wealth in the world. You were incredible. Your portfolio and your hedge funds were going. And you're bringing the money home, and you're putting it in your pouch. And that pouch... It's filled with holes because there are recessions and drops even in the ancient Near East. And you thought that you were going to find satisfaction from all this stuff that you gathered out there. You thought that when you drove up to your palace and you walked through your doors and everyone said, Ah, the king of the manor is home. The queen of the manor is home. The prince and princess of the manor are home. You thought that you would walk in and all of life would make sense and you'd be deeply satisfied but I constantly was taking away that satisfaction. Some of you are going, that doesn't sound really loving. It sounds quite punitive. But God is going, I am so loving that I'm trying to strip away all the pleasures of all of those other gods to a degree so that you will come back to me the ultimate pleasure in life. You see, I love you that much, but you weren't getting it. Now, you see, the Jews should have. We may not, but the Jews should have because that list that you see listed in there of all of those things, it was straight from the book of Ezekiel. He said, basically, if you disobey me and you disregard me, here are the things that are going to happen. And so the people should have gone, oh, there was hail that came. That's odd that hail came. There was drought. Hmm, interesting, there was drought. There's no, where have I heard those before? Oh, that was in the scroll of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel prophesied that. Oh, what was that all about? Oh, it was because he said if we disobey God and lose our passion for him, he's going to do these things to bring us back to himself. And they read that and went, that's interesting. And they went right back to it. 
And so God says, I've got to get your attention a little bit more. He's so absolutely loving of you that he then sent his word into your life. For them, it was Haggai, who was the mouthpiece of God. But for us, it was this. You want to know why studying the scripture is so absolutely imperative and important for the Christian? Because it's God's voice to you. It's him saying, let me help you understand your life. Let me help you understand your passions and your heart and your goals. Let me help you understand all of those things. Come back to my word and my word will penetrate and my word will speak and it will say, thus says the Lord to you. In history, we still didn't get it and so he had to send his ultimate word And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He said, I want to get your attention, folks. I want to. I love you so much that I want to get your attention. I think that there are some of you who are here today because God wants to get your attention. You've grown cold, or you just don't even know what your passion and purpose in life is, and you're wandering around, and you walked in the door today going, I don't even know why I'm here. You're here to hear this from the Lord. He wants to be your passion. And he is orchestrating everything in your life so that he will be. And some of them are very difficult things. Some of them are difficult things that he orchestrates by providence in our lives. But it's never just to break us down to break us down. It's to bring us to our knees so that we will cling to a cross and say, I don't understand everything, but I do know this, you are what I need. Study hard this afternoon and find the passage in Scripture that says God will never give you more than you can handle. It's not in my Bible. God will always give you more than you can handle so that you will come to your senses and go to your knees and come to him and say, God, I can't handle this, but you can. Would you handle this for me? The weight of my life and all the loss in my life and all the gods that I've run after and all the idols that I've served have ultimately led me to nothing and death and I need something more. Would you be that? And that's what he was doing for the people here. That's what he was doing to the people here. So how did they respond? How will you respond to it? What a mean, horrible God. Who could do such things that he would do? Why would he do that to these people? Or, like them, his confrontation, which so lovingly comes and challenges us. Because ultimately, here's what the people were doing. The people were saying, God, you know that plan you had 14 years ago? It's not a very good plan. I got a better one. We're going to leave your house in ruins and I'm going to build my world. We're going to leave you sort of on the periphery because this whole you in the center thing, I've got a better idea for that. Do you see the not so subtle arrogance in that statement? And he said, folks, I love you too much to let you stand in your pride. I'm coming in. And so guess how the people responded? Ah, how should we respond? They repented and they got busy. They repented and they returned. It says that the word of the Lord came to them. And it says that the leaders, Jehozadak uh, and Shealtiel and uh, all, they were, they were there. Zerubbabel. Interesting, Zerubbabel simply means seed of Babel. That was his name. So obviously he was a young man who was born in Babylon. But he came back and was leading his people. Interesting, do you know where you're going to find his name? In the lineage of Jesus. Go read the lineage of Jesus and you will find Zerubbabel in the lineage of Jesus. 
And so here was this young man, and here were these people, and they heard the word of the Lord, and he said, get back to work, get back to doing these things, go, go up to the hills, get the wood out of the hills, build my temple, get back to work, do these things. And you know what they did? They did it. (laughs) It says that they feared the Lord. They, in a sense, repented and said, Lord God, we were wrong. And instead of milling around in their wrongness of going, oh, woe is me, how could I have missed that, how could I have done that, they simply looked and said, God, praise be to your name for confronting me on this and giving me a hope of returning to you and coming in and getting back to work. And it says they repented and they worshiped the Lord and within just a couple of weeks they were back at it. They were doing the work in a town with no walls and opposition that was there And they were doing the work. Why? First, because they believed the word of the Lord. Belief and faith, folks, is incredibly important. And the second was what the content of that belief. The Lord describes himself in here, and we're going to end with this, in this way over and over. And the Lord of hosts. Interesting, isn't it? Did you ever catch that when you read it? The Lord of hosts. Several times, repeated, over and over. Why is it important for him to describe himself to this people as the Lord of hosts? Because he basically was saying this, I'm the Lord of the armies of heaven. I am the general, and I have myriads of angels on my side, and I will defend you. Get back to work. Don't worry about those silly people over there threatening you with sticks and stones. I'm going to guard you. I'm the Lord of the hosts of heaven. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was on the cross, I said, hey, aren't you the Lord of hosts? Can't you call down heaven itself to defend you? He goes, oh, I could, but I won't at this moment. But our God says, oh, I can and I will on behalf of my people. I am the Lord of hosts. And I'm not out there somewhere, but guess where it says that he is? I am the Lord of hosts and I am in your midst. I'm with you. Do you know that today? That the God of this universe is with you. The king of the armies of heaven is with you. You know what that says about your opposition? You know what it says about your opposition? They don't stand a chance. They don't stand a chance against our God. And that one, who that evil one who wants to bring you down, you know what kind of chance he stands? Oh, by the way, he's already lost. And he's defeated and he's a little ticked off. So as he's going off of the field to be cast out, he's kicking and screaming a little bit. And he's roaring at you a little bit. And he's threatening you a little bit. But you know, ultimately, we look and go, the victory I have is in Christ. For he is with me. Let's boil that down here now. What's this table all about? This table is all about a God who says, I'm with you. This table is about a God who says, I couldn't come up with a more powerful and perfect plan than to send my son into this world to live for you and to die for you. His passion is you. And coming back to this, this is a table of renewal. For some of you, you've grown cold. Come and be inflamed again. 
For some of you, that passion is gone. Come and see the passion of our God and let it impassion your hearts. For some of you, you're afraid of those voices that you hear, of those threatenings that are out there. Listen to a voice here that says, I have overcome the world. I am with you now and for always, even into the end of the age, and I will never leave you or forsake you. Thus says the Lord. So come, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and find your rest with him today. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for stories of hope right in the middle of the ancient history lessons where there was a people that were stealing your glory by building their own lives and yours was being rubbished over there. You could have just wiped them out, but instead you redeemed them. You loved them enough to restore them. Thank you that you love us enough to restore us. We praise you and we thank you. Father, for some who are here today, would we, like those there in Jerusalem, repent? Would we own our stuff? And then would we come and put our hands back to work for you, living our lives passionately for our Savior? Bless this table. Bless it. Use it powerfully now as it's intended to be used as a means of grace in your kingdom's work. Amen.